Good morning. How are we doing this morning, brothers and sisters? We feeling okay? Good. It is good to see you guys. Uh, man, I'm so overjoyed to be able to... Man, i got a runny nose. It's kind of an emotional worship, right? Um, we serve an amazing God. Uh, for those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting yet, my name is Seth. I get to work with the youth here at Fremont E-Free. Um, I love my job. I am so blessed to be able to teach your kids about the Lord and to be able to spend time with them. Um, my goodness, guys, we serve an amazing God. Amen? I don't know if you know him. He is a great God. I mean, you want to talk about power? Our God is omnipotent. His power is, is immeasurable. He upholds the entire universe by the strength of his might. Stars that you and I have never seen in distant galaxies, he sustains day to day. He calls them all by name. And because of his will, they are held together. I don't know if you know about his wisdom. Our God is omniscient. He knows all things. He's not like you and I where when we're presented with a problem, he has to stop and think like, oh, I probably need to get some more information to figure out what to do with this. He perfectly comprehends all things at all times, sees them coming before they even get there. I mean, if you think about it, there's 7 billion people on the planet. Let's say 700 million of them are believers and praying to him. His mind at, at any instance is comprehending millions of prayers all across the globe, all at the same time, and determining how he's going to move in the lives of each and every one of them to answer those prayers. Okay, I get overwhelmed when my wife and my son are trying to talk to me at the same time. Our God does not. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is in all places at all times. You could go to the furthest edge of the universe to try and escape him, and you will never get away from him. We serve an awesome God, and yet as good and as powerful as he is, that God left heaven and he came to earth. He was born in a barn. He lived a humble life as a carpenter, and then he ended up giving his life on a cross to save sinners who are living in rebellion against his holy reign. That's the God that we serve. Do you know him? Have your eyes seen his glory? Have you tasted the goodness, the greatness of our God? That is who we are here to worship this morning. You exist for his glory. And for this morning, we're going to fix our eyes on him and seek to honor him as we, as we gaze upon him in his word. As you guys know, we've been going through the book of Acts. Today we are in Acts chapter 23, verses 12 uh, through 35. And uh, just to give a little bit of context for the book of Acts, the book of Acts serves as a part two to the gospel of Luke. It follows what happened with the disciples and the early church after Jesus ended up ascending back up into heaven. And it ends up basically breaking down into three different sections. Uh, the first section goes from chapters 1 through 12, where it looks at the spread of the gospel through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And it primarily focuses on the apostolic ministry of Peter and the other disciples, right, as they proclaim the gospel in those regions. Then from chapters 13 to 21, through 21, it shifts to Paul and the Holy Spirit's work through the apostle Paul, right, as the gospel begins to go to the Gentiles. And I don't know if you guys know, this is really good news because everyone in this room, I'm guessing, is a Gentile, all right? This is how the gospel came to us. This is how our God came and met us. It started right there, Acts 13 through 22, as God proclaimed the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the start of it. And then by the time you get to chapter 22, you see this shift. 
as we follow Paul's journey to Rome, as he continues to testify to the ministry um, in, in the gospel that God has called him to proclaim. And it's in that final section that we're going to be at tonight, so we look at chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. Uh, but before we dive into it, let me pray and ask God to teach us, because if he doesn't teach us, we're not going to learn a darn thing. So God, uh, you're an awesome God. Lord, we stand in awe of you. Lord, and what you have done, Lord, what awesome works you have done, Lord, in creating the world and in saving your people through Jesus' death on the cross. Um, God, these are works that we've scarcely begun to understand. But Lord, would you give us ears that hear this morning? Would you give us eyes that see? Lord, would you grant our hearts to comprehend through your Holy Spirit the spiritual truth of what we're going to be reading in your word? God, we want to know you more. We want to follow you more closely. We want to love you with everything we have. So God, would you please change us, open our eyes to see you through the preaching of your word this morning. And God, would you transform us to a, be a people who are ready, um, who say, here I am, Lord, send me. Oh God, would you do your work in us this morning? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, I want to invite you guys to stand at this point for the reading of scripture. The reason we stand is because we serve an awesome God and we recognize this is his word. You can follow along with your Bibles. I will also have the words on screen. Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council, and I found that he was being accused about questions of their law but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. 
And when they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. The main point I want us to see as we go through the text this morning is this. The purposes of God are not jeopardized by the plots of men. The purposes of God are not jeopardized by the plots of men. We're going to see this in the passage as we see the plot devised, the plot revealed, and the plot demolished. So the first point, the plot devised. This is sections, uh, verses 12 through 15. I want you guys to remember, it was only two days ago that Paul was undergoing these purification rites in observance of the law, right? He wanted to show the Christians in Jerusalem that he too honored the Lord and kept the law. And so he's paying for these men who have fulfilled a Nazarite vow to go through the process of completing their vow. And it's during this time that we have these Jews from Asia Minor, probably Ephesus, who end up seeing him in the temple and they stir up a crowd to go and grab Paul and drag him out of the temple. And in fact, if God had not sovereignly sent the Roman cohort to intervene and save him, Paul probably would have been killed at that time. Except the Roman guards show up right when they need to, and Paul ends up delivering his testimony to the Jews on the steps uh, leading up to the barracks. That was two days ago. Yesterday, Paul was before the Sanhedrin. He was giving his defense to them about how he's a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and he's on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead proclaiming to them who Christ is. And if you guys remember, the the Sanhedrin is divided. You have Pharisees yelling at Sadducees. And then the Roman guard thinks that Paul's going to get ripped apart in the middle of this. And so they end up pulling him back and bringing him back to the barracks. So this is the day after. And the Jews have already devised a plot to murder Paul. We see this in verses 12 through 13. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Okay? Now notice, I want you guys to notice their hatred for Paul. This isn't like, oh man, that guy's so annoying. Every time I have to sit with him in class, he asks these stupid questions, you know. This isn't isn't annoyance. This isn't a Man, if I ever ran into that guy, I'd show him what for. This is a, I'm going to starve myself until we see this guy murdered. I will not allow any rest to myself until we have seen him killed. How much would you have to hate someone for your heart to go to that place? Brothers and sisters, there are more than 40 people at this point who hate Paul that much. They have bound themselves with an oath. Now, the Greek word for oath is one that I'm sure you're familiar with. It's anathema, right? Uh, According to Daryl Bach, a Bible commentator, uh, talking about this passage, he says this oath is a commitment to do something or to underwrite a statement by placing oneself under a curse if it fails. The irony is that they take an oath before God that actually violates God's standards and God's will. Okay? They're literally promising God that they're going to kill Paul, and they're asking God to curse them if they don't follow through on it. Do you see how wicked and twisted this is? Forty men have made an oath to Almighty God to murder His servant, an innocent man who has not violated the law 
who just the day before, they were not able to condemn him with anything, and they're asking God to bind them with a curse if they don't follow through on it. This is utterly wicked. Their sinful minds have completely warped their thinking of what God's law calls them to do. But rather than hiding it and going about it in secret, they come before the chief priests and the elders. Verse 14, they went to the chief priests and the elders, and and, and they invite them to join them in this plot. Now, the chief priests and the elders represent the holy, pious, and wise men of Israel, right? These are their religious leaders. The priests are the guys who come before the Lord on a daily basis, right, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, Right? They should be the ones who know the law of God and call, pe- call people to stand fast, to hold fast to the word of the Lord. And the elders are, are the wise men of Israel. They're the, the gray-haired guys, right? They're the guys who are like, who should, be, who should be saying, Son, I have been down that foolish path. Don't walk it, okay? They're supposed to be the ones to give wise counsel to the men of Israel. And so rather than hiding this plot, these 40 men come and present themselves to their elders and their pastors with this devious plot, and they invite them to join them in it. Verses 14 through 15. They say, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And so what do the elders and the priests do? What do the pastors and the elders of of Jerusalem do? Verse 20. And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. They agreed to it. They said, All right, we're in. Let's murder this guy. This is so wicked. This is so wrong. This is such a perversion of justice. Of all the men who should know the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, it should be the the chief priests. Of all the people that should call people to walk according to wisdom and hold to the standards of the law to not condemn a man until he is justly tried, it should be the elders. And yet they are agreeing to deceive the tribune so that as Paul is being brought down to the Sanhedrin, he will be murdered in the streets. This is a complete abomination. This is a complete overturning of justice. And it speaks to to, to God's condemnation of the leaders of Jerusalem and Judea at this time. Even their aged and wise men are participating in this conspiracy. And in all honesty, it reminds me of Saruman from Lord of the Rings. Raise your hand if you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. Let me see how many brothers I have in here in the house. All right. So if you brothers and sisters will recall with me, Saruman is a wizard, right? Uh, Technically, he's an Istari who was sent to aid the free people of Middle-earth in waging war against the dark lord Sauron, right? that's, That's why he's there. He is there to help them. And as he begins to see Sauron rising to power, and as the ring of power is discovered and the fellowship of the ring is formed, of all the people who should be jumping to the aid of the fellowship of the ring, it should be Saruman. And yet, what does he do? He joins in with the Dark Lord. When Gandalf comes and pleads with him for help and seeks wisdom, he turns on Gandalf and ends up having him imprisoned. Of all the people who should have been fighting alongside the fellowship of the ring, it was Saruman. 
of all the people who should be exercising wisdom and crying out against the dark Lord Sauron, it should be him. And yet he turned on them and betrayed them. The chief priests and the elders are like the Saruman of their time, looking to deceive the tribune so that wicked men will be able to murder Paul. Behold the wickedness of men. Brothers and sisters, this is what humanity was like 2,000 years ago, and times have not changed too much. I don't know if you've ever turned on the, the TV lately and watched the news, but men still lie and men still look to murder each other. That is what we call total depravity. And praise God, because we also were in the midst of our sin when Christ found us. Paul's persecution here mirrors that of Jesus, who Jesus, being an, an innocent man in Jerusalem, was sought to be killed by these same people, though he had done nothing wrong, though he had done nothing deserving of death. And here Paul is also an innocent man, and he's suffering, just as Jesus said his disciples would. In John 15, I want you guys to see this, John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If the world hated Jesus, brothers and sisters, it will also hate those who follow Jesus. Just as it hated Christ when he was in Jerusalem, so they're hating Paul and seeking to kill him while he's there. So here is where you and I have to take a hard look in the mirror, and we have to ask ourselves this question. The world hated Jesus, but does it hate me? Am I talking to people about their need to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus? Because if you take that message to worldly people who want nothing to be with God, they, who want nothing to do with God, they are probably not going to like you for it. They might even hate you for it. And if at some point you realize that all the worldly people around you are all cool with you, you should probably ask yourself, when was the last time I shared the gospel with them? Now, just to be clear, not every worldly person is going to hate you when you share the gospel with them. I recently had the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with my neighbor about the gospel. And it was actually a very cordial conversation. He listened to what I have to say. He told me some of his viewpoints. And even though like, we came to different conclusions, like, he, was, he was willing to hear me out and, and to consider it. Even to consider coming to church sometime. Pray, pray he does. Um, it, it was a good conversation. So just to be clear, not everyone's going to hate you if you share the gospel with them. Um, there will be people who don't. But if you faithfully share the gospel in grace and in truth, you will most likely run into some people who get pretty ticked off about what you have to say. Such people may even hate you for sharing the gospel. But whether they like it or not, it is true. And it is their only hope for salvation. Will you share it with them anyways? Will you care about them enough to endure the awkwardness, to endure the possible hostility against you because you recognize their need to be saved? You see, the Jews here are royally ticked off about Paul's proclamation of the gospel, and they've hatched this plot to murder him. But brothers and sisters, hear me. The purposes of God are not jeopardized by the plots of men. And God ends up revealing this plot to our brother Paul. We see this in verse 16. 
Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So when he went and entered the barracks and he told Paul, recognize this morning that our God is omniscient. He knows every blade of grass. He knows every hair on your head. And yes, some of us have more hairs than others. He knows every grain of sand. He knows every star, every planet in the most remote reaches of the universe that no human eye has ever laid eye on. God knows they are there and they exist for his glory, declaring the wonders of his name. There is nothing that is hidden from our God's sight. Every action, every word, every thought, every inclination of your heart is laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. There is nothing in all creation that escapes his attention. Our God is a revealer of secrets. What is whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. What kings dream in visions of the night are proclaimed on the lips of his prophets. How much more an oath that wicked men make plainly before their God. Our God takes this plot and he discloses it to Paul's nephew, which outside of this passage, we don't really know uh, much anything else about him. But he presumably heard this being discussed by the conspirators, and so he comes and he shares it with his uncle Paul. Why is God doing this? Why did God strategically place Paul's nephew in just the right place at just the right time to hear this conspiracy so that it would find its way all the way back to the tribune? Because God has already revealed in this chapter that he stands by Paul and that Paul is going to bear witness to his name in Rome. And there is no power of hell nor scheme of man that can pluck his servant from his hand. Our God is unrivaled in his supremacy. What he declares will happen, happens. What our God ordains, history obeys. What our God decrees, history bows its knees. Do you know our Lord? One of the greatest empires that ever existed was the Babylonian Empire. And God, after humbling its king, King Nebuchadnezzar, had this to say about our Lord. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can question our God. God has determined to preserve his servant Paul, and there is no one strong enough to say otherwise. The purposes of Almighty God are not jeopardized by the impotent plots of men. Therefore, Paul is indestructible until he has fulfilled his commission from the Lord. Praise our God. Even so, I wonder how this must have felt for Paul. I mean, can you guys imagine being locked up in the fortress of Antonio in Jerusalem, and you know that just on the other side of these walls here, there are 40 men who have taken an oath to starve themselves until they have murdered you. How many of you, if you know that there are 40 dudes who made a promise to God that they're not going to eat until they've killed you, would be just skipping out the front doors of church this Sunday morning? I don't know about you guys. I would be putting a sack over my head. I'd be calling the cops to give me an escort, right? I would be extremely nervous. Not to mention, Paul is in the middle of a town where just a couple days earlier, 
virtually the whole town was ganging up and trying to murder him. I mean, you want to talk about living in a hostile environment. This is it. He is not in his comfort zone here. So where do you look in times of trouble? If you're Paul and if you're in the fortune of Antonio and considering the men who so vehemently hate you and want to see you murdered and to recognize that they are in the positions of power, where do you look? Brothers and sisters, when you are in deep distress, when you don't know how you're going to make it through what you're going through, where do you look? When your son is having seizures and you can't do anything to stop it, where do you look? When you lose your job and you're struggling to find one to replace it and you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, where do you look? Who do you turn your eyes upon? This honestly reminds me of a time when I was on the world race. It was month 10, and we were in China. Um, this is north-central China, uh, a, a town called Xining. And I remember on this particular day, uh, we'd just gotten done with our ministry, and we were going to the restaurant, uh, sitting down to have a bite to eat. Even, and even before we got there, I was feeling kind of sick. I wasn't feeling that great. And the more we hung out, I couldn't eat that much. And I eventually got to the point where I'm just like, man, I'm going to end up throwing up all over this place. Like, I feel pretty miserable. I just need to go back to our apartment. And our apartment was 16 to 20 blocks away, I'd guess. But I'm like, man, I'm young. I'm in my mid-20s. Yes, I don't feel good, but I can handle this, right? I've hiked over mountains. Like, like this will be a problem. So I, I said goodbye to our group, and I started to find my way up the streets of Xining, China, to try and head back to our apartment. And as I started to head that way, I recognized it's really cold out, okay? It's winter in northern China. It's, it, this is a cold day. The wind was blowing a lot. And I'll never forget that as I was going along, I, just, I, I felt my hands just trembling. And so I put my hands under my armpits. Have you, have you guys ever been so cold to where like your jaw is just chattering the whole time while you're walking? Like my jaw sounded like a chainsaw. It was kind of embarrassing. I'm just like... I, my back was bent over, it was hurting, I felt like I was going to throw up, I don't know what I had, but it was, I felt so sick, but I was stubborn, and I'm just like, no, I'm like already five blocks there, I'm going to keep going, so I kept pushing, and after about halfway there, I honestly began to think, I don't know if I'm going to make it, like at this point, I'm feeling so weak, I, like, I'm just like, do I need to lay down on the side of the road, do I ask for help, I don't speak Mandarin Chinese, like, how am I even going to be able to tell them where I need to go? Like, I started to really stress out. I started to, I started to think, like, am I literally going to die on the side of a street out here in China because I don't have the strength to get back to our apartment on a freezing cold night? But I remembered what I was studying in the Word that morning about how no matter how deep or dark our circumstances, we need to cry out to God and bring it to Him. So I did. I ended up looking up to heaven. I ended up praying to God, and I was like, God, please have mercy on me. Lord, you've been so good to me. You've been so faithful to me. And I started thanking him for all the things he did in my life. And in that exact instance, I felt my back get warm. I felt my strength return to me. I felt my stomach feel normal. I straightened up in an instant. And I started bawling because I recognized that Almighty God had heard my prayer. Brothers and sisters, I'm not someone who thinks that miracles just happen all around me every day, okay? I'm pretty skeptical when I, when I say these things, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that God instantaneously healed me in that moment and gave me the strength to continue the rest of the way home. Do you know that our God is a fortress for those who call upon him? 
Psalm 33, verses 18 through 20, put it this way. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Do you know that to be the case? Call upon our God, and he is mighty to deliver. I wish I looked it to him and trusted in him like that all the time. Unfortunately, I don't. My goodness, I'm a sinner, and I, and I am in need of his grace. But the more we do this, the more we're going to thrive as believers. So brothers and sisters, let me encourage you today. Look to God, and you will find him to be a fortress for your life. Put your faith in him, as I'm sure our brother Paul did. So Paul ends up calling for the centurion. The centurion brings his nephew to the tribune, and the tribune listens to Paul's nephew's request. We see this in verses 20 through 21. He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. Now the tribune at this point, he has a couple different responsibilities that he needs to fulfill. Okay, First off, he's supposed to keep the peace in Jerusalem. All right, And he's doing his job well when news gets back to Rome that everything in Jerusalem is hunky-dory and quiet. However, he also needs to be looking out for the interests of Roman citizens. Paul is a Roman citizen, and he is currently under his custody. So as tribune, he needs to be looking out for his welfare. And so it's at this moment the tribune ends up dismissing Paul's nephew, telling him to not say a thing about it, and he begins to form his own plan to overturn the conspirators' plot. Why? Because the purposes of God are not jeopardized by the plots of men. And our God, in his divine foreknowledge, has determined to use the tribune Claudius Lysias to protect his servant Paul. And this gets to our final point for the morning, as the plot is demolished. We see this in verses 23 through 24. Then he called to the centurions, and he said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearsmen, and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. Now in Jerusalem at this time, there was a Roman cohort of a thousand soldiers, and about half of them are going to be entrusted in making this overnight hike um, to Antipatris. So whatever plans that 40 men might have had at overcoming the Roman guard and murdering Paul in the streets would be quickly discouraged by a better armored, better trained, veteran force that outnumbers them 12 to 1. Anyone with any desire to hang on to his life for any amount of time would look at this situation and decide maybe this isn't a good idea. And what Paul is enjoying here is but a dim reflection of the safety that he has under the watchful guard of the Lord, his shepherd. God is watching over him. And in one night, God secures the safety of his servant and demolishes the plot of the wicked. Their intended victim is carried away out of that city, out of their reach, and their conspiracy is crushed. Praise our God, how he brings the plans of the wicked to nothing, how his will is established forever. There is no counsel against the Lord that will stand. 
There is no purpose of his plan that can be overturned. What he has determined to do, so he does, period, end of story. That is our God. And so he takes his servant to Caesarea, verses 31 through 32. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. Now, just to give you guys an idea, Antipatris is about 37 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And Caesarea Martima is about another 26 miles north of that, right? If you want to have an idea of the trip they had to get there, the foot soldiers only went to Antipatris before they recognized he's safe. And then the cavalry uh, continued on with him to Caesarea. And they end up delivering to the governor Felix this letter, okay? This letter uh, given to the Roman procurator of Judea, Governor Felix, you can read about in verses 26 through 30, but basically it restates everything that happened to Paul over the last three days and his reason for sending him. Now it's important to note here that Governor Felix is not a good man, okay? He's not the kind of guy you want as a role model for your kids, this is a man who was formerly a slave and who came to power because of the political connections um, of his brother in Rome. Unfortunately, though, his humble background did not make him a compassionate ruler. I found this in a uh, commentary on the book of Acts by David Peterson. He says, Tacitus famously describes him as having practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. And in fact, he would only be governor for about seven years because there would be so much turmoil and uprising in Judea during his reign there as governor. So Paul has gone from almost being murdered in Jerusalem to now being tried before an unjust tyrant of a governor. Not the best that a person could hope for. And yet Christ is still on the throne and he is still guarding the life of his servant. Verses 34 through 35. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And it's here under Felix's guard in the praetorium that Paul would be exceptionally safe, though he would remain there for two years. And then God, in his perfect timing, would pave the way for his servant to carry the gospel to Rome. Brothers and sisters, the main point I want us to see through all of this is that the purposes of God are not jeopardized by the plots of men. We have seen this as the plot is devised, as God had the plot revealed, and as God completely annihilated the plot. And so the question we have to ask ourselves at this point is, how does this apply to our lives? And I want to address the non-believer first. If you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus, know that you are a sinner and that you are in need of a Savior, and believe in Jesus Christ. The truth is, you have done what is evil in the sight of a holy God. If you're like me, and you're in your 30s, and you've only committed one sin a day, only one time a day, have you had a lustful thought? Have you sworn under your breath? Um, have you seen the good that you ought to do, and yet refrain from doing it? Only once a day. By the time you are 30, you will have sinned over 10,000 times. One sin is enough to separate you from God eternally. 10,000 plus sins is a debt that you can never in your wildest dreams hope to repay. And you have an accounting to give before the Lord your God. On the day of judgment, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? Because there is nothing that you can do that will undo the crimes that you have committed. 
But praise God that though he is just and punishes the wicked according to their sins, he's also a gracious and compassionate God, amen? Who sent his only begotten son. He lived the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died on the cross in the place of everyone who believes in him. So that as they look to him, believing that he is the son of God and that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for your sins, then they would be forgiven. If you're a non-believer today, look to Christ Believe in him and you will be saved. However, if you, if you are a believer, I want to ask you some questions. First off, are you living a life of gospel proclamation? Are you living a life of gospel proclamation? We've received the greatest news on earth, right? That God has overcome sin and death and we've been entrusted with this beautiful gospel to go and declare to other people. And it is God's plan A for the church to carry this forth. And there's no plan B. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are you sharing it with others? And if not, what are the things that often prevent you from talking to others about Christ? Is it a fear of sounding like a nut job? Is it a fear of losing a relationship? Is it a fear that people are going to look at you at school and think you are just totally weird because you, you rep Jesus so much? Or maybe it's just not even on your radar. You talk with non-believers and the eternal salvation isn't, isn't even on your radar. Whatever those things are that hinder you from sharing the gospel with those around you, I want you to leave them behind. Ask God to give you the boldness to, to say something and the opportunity to talk with people about who Jesus is and what he has done. It is The gospel is their only hope for salvation. And if we keep our mouth silent, how are they going to hear of him? Second question I want to ask, are you putting your trust in God? When times get difficult, where do you turn? Are you training your soul to continually look to God and find your rest in him? When things go well, do you thank him? When things go poorly, do you cry out to him? Where are you placing your trust? Because there is no rock like our God. Teach your soul to trust in him alone. He is a great God, and, the pur- and his purposes are not jeopardized by the plots of men. Let me close this out. God, you are so awesome. Lord, you are so great. Lord, it's amazing that the devil or wicked men think that they can do anything to overturn your will. Oh God, would you exalt your name in our lives? God, would you fill us with your spirit this week? God, would you fill us with a love for those around us who don't know you, to come and to share the good news that you have overcome sin and death and that forgiveness is found in simply believing in you and trusting in you. God, would you fill us with your love and with your spirit so that with boldness we can carry that message to them. And God, would you train our souls to continually look to you, to rely on you, and to continually um, teach ourselves to look to you in eyes of faith. God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. But Lord, would you magnify your name in our lives this week as we seek to be obedient to your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. At this moment, we're going to go into a time of communion. So I want to encourage you guys to take out your chalice at this time. Now, the reason that we do communion is threefold. Number one, it's to remember um, Jesus' death. Jesus paid no small price so that you could be saved. 
He literally gave his life so that everyone who believes in him, suffering under the eternal wrath of God so that we could be saved. So first off, we remember him. Secondly, it's to identify ourselves with him. And thirdly, it's to look to his return because he is coming back to reign and every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. So first, let's partake of the bread and I'm gonna read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Lord and partake of the bread together. All right, now I want you guys to peel back the part that has the juice. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember our Lord together. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray one last time. God, we thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, we thank you that you have had such great mercy on us. Lord God, you sacrificed your own, your own life so that we could know you and be restored to you. God, would that mean something to us? Would your sacrifice, would we truly understand what it cost you? And then God, would you fill us with that same love, God, a self-sacrificial love to serve you in every capacity that you give us, God, that you would not just be a part of our lives, but God, that you would be our life, period. And everything else is a distant second. God, you are worthy of nothing less than this. Exalt your name in our lives. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Brothers and sisters, go in God's peace.